The talk tonight is on selflessness and interconnectedness. I'd like to begin with a poem by Mary Oliver, who's one of my favorite uh, poets. She writes so eloquently about how she experiences the truth of life in a very elemental way. And so I found through one of her poems called White Flowers, her experience of dissolving her, the sense of self and connecting with all of life through this dissolving. This is a shortened version of White Flowers. Last night in the fields, filled with those white flowers, when I woke, the morning light was just slipping in front of the stars, and I was covered with blossoms. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if my body went diving down under the vines, or whether that green rose like a wave and curled over me. Never in my life had I felt so plush or so resplendently empty. Never in my life had I felt myself so near that porous line where my own body was done with and the roots and the stems and the flowers began. Where my body was done with and the roots and the flowers and the stems began that porous line. Many of you have been describing this in your practice. Many of you have been describing how you see the intangible, impermanent, moving, dissolving experience moment to moment. You're not calling it non-self or an anatta experience. But you're seeing how thoughts come and go. They're very cloud-like and intangible. How the uh, elements of the body, the uh, physical sensations of the body, are coming and going. How emotions in the body and mind come and go. So you're already describing this to us. Many times in our practice, this is what happens when we're sitting, walking, or in the other activities of our practice, a sound arises, and what happens? There's the hearing of the sound and just the awareness of it. We all experience this. Even though we experience many other moments of dukkha, we experience this too. When we're eating, the food touches our taste buds in the mouth, and tasting arises with the awareness of it. So there's just tasting and the awareness of it. And the same with seeing. There's uh, some object that impinges and contacts the physicality of the eye. And seeing occurs and the awareness of it. The same with thoughts, sensations in the body. We're experiencing this directly over and over again just the experience and the bare attention with the experience. In these moments where there is bare attention with the experience, there is no identification with the self. 
we're not referring back consciously to, oh yeah, this is happening to me. Oh yeah, that creates Kamala. When there is just the experience and the bare attention, there is no identification with the self. There is no creation of a self. Sometimes we feel frustrated because we uh, experience a lot of other difficult things in our meditation and we don't feel like we're being mindful. But actually there are countless moments of this bare attention to experience where there is uh, pure, pristine mindfulness. And it's so powerful. These seeds of mindfulness that are, that are being born are being planted to create future seeds in our experience. We usually don't pick them up or don't remember them because they're empty. They're not, they don't have grist to them. But there are countless, a countless number of them for each of us. We remember the gritty parts of our experience and we come in complaining about those things. But actually, many, many powerful seeds are being planted. Someone asked me about, are we transcending ourselves? And I thought about that for a while, and it really seems to me that we're not transcending ourselves, but we're really coming more closer, more close, more intimate with who we really are, um, or who we really are not. <laughs> we're discovering the hidden terrain of our minds and hearts and bodies. And so we're coming closer and closer to this, instead of getting farther and farther away. We're seeing the truth of this process, this experience, this truth of who we really are. So with every moment of awareness that arises with whatever is happening in that present moment, whether it's hearing, tasting, thinking, smelling, whatever it is, there's just the experience and there's no experiencer. When there's bare attention, to those moments, there's no experiencer. This is happening whether you want it to or not, whether you think it is or not. So with every moment of experience, there's a relationship to it of awareness when this is happening. When there's a relationship of awareness, there's no identification with the sense of I. There is no creation of I. Experience is just reflecting itself in every moment. That is what's happening. Just um, as I spoke the other night about mindfulness is like a mirror. It just reflects what's happening in that present moment. When mindfulness is there, there's no attachment, no aversion, no confusion. So when we have this relationship of awareness to every moment of our life, we're not uh, creating this sense of solidified I. We live our lives in a truer way. There is a Kamala on a conceptual relative level, but we understand more deeply that there is no Kamala on the ultimate level. So we begin to live in two worlds, and be we begin to experience life more fully that way. When there is no awareness, what happens? 
when there's no awareness there, we create a relationship of either attachment, aversion, or confusion to that moment. In that relationship, the experience of self gets solidified. That's why mindfulness is so important. In the Bahia Sutta, which was one of the suttas the Buddha gave to one of his disciples, whose name was Bahia, he said this, O Bahia, whenever you see a form, let there just be the form, the seeing of the form. Whenever you hear a sound, let there just be the hearing. When you smell an odor, let there just be the smelling. When you taste a flavor, let there just be the tasting. When a thought arises, let it be just a natural phenomena arising in the mind. When you practice like this, there will be no self, no I. When there is no self, there will be no running that way and no coming this way and no stopping anywhere. Self will not exist. That is the end of suffering. That itself is Nibbana or peace. So a relationship of mindfulness or awareness to every moment of life or to any moment of life is the only way that we don't create a sense of self which creates suffering. Because if we're not relating with mindfulness, we're relating with aversion, attachment, or confusion. And those three states are states of suffering. In Asia, I heard it once said that a saint is considered to be someone who is simply walking when she's walking, smelling when she's smelling, hearing when he's hearing, that there's just the experience and no experiencer. That's a description of a saint in, a in some Asian countries. I have a very simple householder's mind, and so some very complex Abhidhamic um, understandings of life or the way it's um, uh, said Abhidhamma-wise, I don't understand. But there's one thing that Manindra taught me about Santati, which is a translation in English, the illusion of continuity or the illusion of solidity. And this is how he explained it to me that made me uh, see it more easily, to understand this process more easily. Um, when we come here, we slow down a bit and we begin to see our experience more and more closely. And as we slow down and we see more and more closely, we can see the process of our mind-body experience. And Manindra likened it once to, say, he said, behind me, uh, there is this line that you can see. And so from where you are, there is this, looks like this solid line. And because uh, you've slowed down a bit in your practice and you, you're um, we're meditating here, we come closer to the line, and that is like coming closer to our experience. And when we come close to the line, we see as we're close to the line or to our experience that that line is moving, that experience is moving. It's not still. So this is what we actually experience. 
the impermanence of life. And then as we get even closer still, say you, you come up closer to this line, you see that that line isn't solid. That line looks solid because it's moving quickly. And so our experience looks solid and we call it a self because it's moving quickly. It's just like a freight uh, train moving in front of us. And we don't, see, um, we don't see that there are spaces between. So if you come closer to this line, you might see that there are spaces between the, uh, this moving line and that this moving line is actually a line of ants or insects crawling up the, the wall. So what we see in our experience is that this moving line is not solid at all. There is uh, something that's, that's in our experience, and then there may be some space, something in our experience. There may be mindfulness. That it's, it's not a solid thing. There isn't something where we can, um, there isn't anything that we can hold on to. It's moving. It's disappearing. One thing flows into another. And so we begin to see this through our own direct experience. There's nothing permanent. There's nothing static. It's just moving. We see that this concept of solidity or this illusion of continuity that we call self is dissolving. It's just a process when we look more closely. It's a process of our mind-body experience. This is what's happening. We, there is no owner of that process. It's just empty phenomena rolling on. One thing appearing, being born, dying, another thing being born, dying again, the process of birth and death in every moment. Where in that process can I call Kamala if I stop it anywhere? So much of our life is based on that idea of self, and there are so many problems because of this. Um, one, of, uh, one of our teachers say, no self, no problem. <laughs> we, we protect, we defend, even if it's just our ideas, and so much trouble comes from this. So we see that life is moving. It's evanescent and fleeting. There's nothing to hold on to. There's really nothing solid. Sometimes um, I liken my own spiritual experience with a parachute story that I heard from Joseph Goldstein once. And it's like this. Uh, when we're on the spiritual path, it's sometimes uh, like maybe we, we're going to we're going to figure out and experience flying or free-falling from, from an airplane. So we go up in, in this airplane, and somebody gives us a parachute. So we get on the plane, we start flying, and, and the, um, the instructor says, OK, jump. And we're really, really fearful. You know, oh, God, what am I going to run into or not run into? And this is a scary experience, so there's a lot of fear. So we, we finally, we jump. And we're falling, 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 falling. And then we decide to pull the parachute open. And we try to pull the parachute open, and it doesn't open. We can't depend on that. We can't depend on anything. So we, we see that we just keep falling.
falling, 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 falling. It's a total free fall, this spiritual path. But what we find is there's no place where we're going to hit ground. <laughs> we just keep falling. And when, <laughs> when we get used to that, it makes the whole process easier. There's no place where we're going to hit. There's nothing solid about us, and there's nothing solid that we're going to hit. We're totally safe. <laughs> but until we realize that through going over and over and over and over it, there's a lot of fear. But by experiencing directly over and over and over again and bringing actual mindfulness to that fear itself and seeing that that fear isn't solid, then this spiritual freefall of our lives becomes a relief. <laughs> I think the biggest word, if anybody has asked me, what it exp what, how did you feel when you understood totally this idea of anatta, this concept of anatta? And the only word I can think of is relief. <laughs> it was a big relief, you know, not to have to protect my opinion, myself. I could live in the world with this idea that I was just connected to all of life instead of separate from life. And I could see what is the right path to take, what path will lead to happiness, what path will lead to suffering. How, how can I cultivate compassion? How can I cultivate fate wisdom? In my own story, my own parachute story, just to make it really brief, um, in my own practice, what I began to see, and this, you know, this happens over years of time, that uh, first the gross sensations of the body disappear and dissolve. And then we begin to start experiencing very light and subtle sensations in the body, very pleasant, floating, lightness, you know, a, a, a real sense of, gee, there, you could, if, if I had my hands closed and I put my hand through my body when that was happening, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even, there would be nothing to touch, it would go right through. Steve um, shared an experience he had about not feeling he had any clothes on the other night. Well, I, I'd feel that I'd be walking through space and I'd have to look down to see, am I really there? I wouldn't even feel like I was touching ground. I'd be sitting and meditating, and I wouldn't even feel like there was a body here that touched anything. And during those times, I would wish that there'd be a pain in my knee, because I couldn't find any body anywhere. And I'd, I'd look everywhere to see, is there anything gross anywhere? And I'd really want to feel some pain or something, because I'd want to know that I existed. Uh, <laughs> So in the body sensations, it, it went from feeling a lot of gross body sensations to feeling light and subtle. And that would go in and out for many years. And then there was a long period of time where there were just very, very subtle body sensations all during the practice. And then also in the mind, there were very gross um, aversion, you know, sense of jealousy or, or self-pity or whatever. It was very gross and very palpable uh, um, states of mind. 
And then the states of mind became very, very subtle, like concentration, calm for long periods of time, equanimity, which you can hardly, it's equanimity is a really thin film. For, uh, this would happen in and out, of course, during the years, but then, it, then one time, there was one time when this was happening a lot, just no sensation in the body, very, very subtle states in the mind. And then that would disappear. Even all that would disappear. And there would just be the knowing of what was going on. And then it would proceed from there to even subtler and unconditioned places. So we begin to see, bit by bit through our experience, that there's nothing solid, there's nothing permanent anywhere. And we begin to live with this ultimate understanding of life. And it, it isn't scary. It's, it's fuller. It's a relief. It's uh, all-embracing. This sense of being nothing is also being everything. And it really is a more complete understanding of life. We're able to live in a relative world because very, very well, because through this understanding what happens, we become very, very sensitive to the laws of cause and effect. Very sensitive. We really want to take the right action in the world. We really want to take, do the right thing in our speech. We really want to avoid uh, mind states that are unskillful or leading to unhappiness and cultivate mind states and actions and words that lead to happiness and peace for ourselves and for everybody around. So with this fuller understanding, we live in a relative world and we live in the ultimate world with great care and attention to the laws of cause and effect, with great care and attention to living harmoniously with, with our society, with our friends, Trungpa Rinpoche has a way of describing this unsolidified self. He says, the experience of oneself relating to other things is actually just a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate these fleeting thoughts fast enough, we can create the illusion of continuity and solidity. It's like watching a movie. The individual film frames are played so quickly, they generate the illusion of continued movement and solidity. So we build up ideas, a preconception that self is solid and continuous. Once we have this idea, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it. And we're afraid to any evidence that's contrary. It is this fear of exposure, this denial of impermanence that imprisons us. It is only by acknowledging impermanence that there is the possibility of appreciating life as a creative process. So with the simple cultivation of awareness, we align ourselves to the truth of life in every moment. We begin to live our lives more fully. But just to review again what we do in our 
lives as a habitual response. Say there is a sound and then there's hearing upon this sound contacts the ear and hearing takes place. And maybe that hearing produces some unpleasant response in, in our mind. With that unpleasant response, there's aversion. Maybe we don't like it, so we push it away. In that case, a sense of self is created. A sense of self is solidified. Or say something uh, pleasant arises because of some, um, some causes and conditions. It could even be wonderful meditative states you know, that produce pleasant sensations, pleasant feelings, and pleasant sensations in the body. What happens then? We like it, and there's attachment to it. And in that case, too, a solid sense of self is created. Or when something happens and we don't know what's happening because the mind is confused or deluded or muddy, in that case, too, a sense of self is solidified. In all those three cases, we identify with what is happening, usually, or all the time we do. These are all responses that separate us from life, either aversion, attachment, or delusion. They separate us from life in all of its forms. When we have pure awareness, we're not separate from life. We're connected. We're deeply connected with all of life. And also, pure awareness connects us with all those skillful qualities of life that we can use relatively. Mindfulness is so important in experiencing this directly. So if there's no mindfulness at the place of either contact or feeling, we create a relationship of it, of attachment or aversion or confusion. That's just what happens. Mindfulness is the only way that we don't create a sense of self. If we don't have mindfulness, all of those other responses to life will come up, attachment, aversion, confusion, and there will be suffering. Without, with mindfulness, there is no sense of self and there's no suffering. In the teachings of the Buddha, he never spoke of human beings as existing in some fixed or static way. Instead, he spoke of human beings as a collection of five changing processes. And these processes are the process of the physical body. We experience that, the process of the physical body. We bring our attention over and over again to tension in the body, pressure, hardness, softness, lightness, tingling. All of those are the process of the physical body and much more. Heat, cool. We, ex we can experience that directly. We also experience the changing process of feelings. Not emotions in this case, but the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. When our mind is very quiet, we can experience this. We also experience perception. When there's a contact on the eardrum, there's a perception of hearing and all the other sense doors. We also experience a process of the responses to that, or volition. 
we also ex experience the process of the flow of consciousness or knowing. It's like uh, the chariot that Steve talked about the other evening. If we take this person apart, we can name all those processes very distinctly. The process of physical sensations, the process of feelings, perception, volition, consciousness. These processes together produce, or when th those conditions come together, we call it self. But it's actually all these processes of changing phenomena. It's easy to understand this, or it's easier to understand this when we experience it directly, when we're actually bringing bare attention to every moment of our experience, or to as many moments we can. But if we try to experience it intellectually, it doesn't work. Achan Shah said, I think I told you earlier, if you try to understand intellectually, your head will explode. <laughs> so we can't understand it intellectually. I can give you examples now, and perhaps they will align with your experience. And through that way, you'll begin to understand. But to try to read it in a book without directly experiencing, your head will explode. That's what happens. We are getting disentangled from this belief of self, whether we like it or not, whether we want to or not, whether we know it or not, whether we intend to or not. We are disentangling this belief. It's very, very powerful. When there is mindfulness, we are flowing with the laws of impermanence, with the laws of change. We're flowing with that truth. And we align ourselves more with the truth of life. So as we are deconditioning the old program that we have, and we're retraining ourselves to respond with awareness, what happens? When there is awareness there, all the other beautiful states of mind, all the other qualities of mind that bring us to more peace, more happiness are nearby. This is the law. This is how it is. All the experiences, all the states of mind, like uh, compassion, equanimity, tolerance, perseverance, kindness, generosity, all those states of mind are nearby. They're easily accessed through mindfulness. They are not easily accessed through attachment, aversion, or confusion. This is the law. So when we're just experiencing with awareness, the sense of self is not created, not solidified. And because we're not responding with attachment, aversion, or confusion, there's no suffering or less suffering. And another thing happens, our sense of interconnectedness is strengthened. When all of, this, all of these um, states of mind and painful, painful states in the body that separate us from life, where we're contracted and we're not feeling our connectedness with all of life, when that, hap when that isn't happening, we feel connected with all of life. It's, it's like a sense of ourself dissolves and it's not that we become ineffectual, it's just that we become stronger. 
one simple way that I experience this is just elementally, through the elements of the body. When I'm experiencing, or when this body-mind is experiencing, uh, the pressure or the hardness of the body, it's the earth element. And when that is experienced, there is a connection with all of the earth element everywhere. I feel so connected with the whole earth element of this universe, of this life. When tears fall, because there might be some sadness, and I'm experiencing the water element, then this water element connects with the water element of all of life, all of the rivers of life, other people's tears, all of the oceans that exist in the world. The same with the fire element, the air element. When we get vibrations in the body, that's the air element. And when the experience of the air element is there, there's uh, a dissolving and a connectedness with the air of all of life, with the atmosphere of all of life. So in that way, in that simple way, we can experience our interconnectedness, connecting in a very elemental way. We begin to experience who we are more as an echocentric being connected to all of life, echocentric, ECO, instead of egocentric. Echocentric is a much stronger uh, existence in life. One feels just part of the weave of all of life. And when you're part of that weaving, part of that tapestry of all of life, one feels really, really strong. When there's an egocentric experience of life, it's very isolated and separate and small, disconnected from everything. You know, wanting to be, dis wanting to be connected, but feeling very disconnected and small. Susie Gablick, who's a deep ecologist and writer, wrote about it this way. She writes, someone made the point that fungus is more essential and crucial to the ecosystem than man, because if fungus disappeared, then the Earth's whole ecology would be in trouble, whereas, whereas if we disappeared, then everything would thrive and do much better. <laughs> So from our understanding of this dissolving into life, this nothingness in a way, we become everything. We live our lives from a deeper wisdom. We live our lives in a fuller way. And we're in more alignment with how things really are. This is how it is. We're just surrendering to the truth moment by moment. Sri Nisargadatta, um, a wise man who was a cigarette vendor in India, talks about living in two worlds simultaneously this way. He says, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. When we discover through wisdom, through this clear seeing, this bare attention, that we're nothing, we also discover our everythingness. We also discover our connection with all of life, which is a love. So between the two, our life flows. 
how does this understanding have value in our lives? How can we live more fully knowing both of these truths, the truth of uh, being empty and the truth of being the truth of being nothing and the truth of being everything. One of our teachers said, if we can't understand non-self, perhaps we can understand non-selfishness. When we understand deeply how to let go in our daily lives and being generous with uh, not just our material wealth, but also with, our, with letting go of our held on to opinions, maybe letting go of our time, giving of our kindness, giving of our listening ear. This kind of understanding of non-selfishness also can lead us to the deepest happiness because we're cultivating mindfulness here. We're cultivating what mindfulness really does is it lets go. Recently I read on the teachings of Wei Wu Wei, why are we so unhappy? It is asked in those teachings because 99% of what we do is for ourselves, and there really isn't one. <laughs> um, one example of flowing between these worlds is a story I tell about my teacher, Manindra. Uh, Manindra is a really very pure being, very pure-hearted being. and. He, he lives between two worlds all the time. Once uh, we had, he had to have an operation, and he was in Maui, and um, it was like a day in, and that same day he went out. But as he went in, they didn't give him, upon his request, as many drugs as they could have. And he was uh, kind of, he was awake but not totally asleep during the operation, and they cut him. Uh, they made a big cut on the side of his belly um, because they were removing something that was in there from an old operation that was left in there from India. Apparently, they have, uh, the, the conditions in India are not so up to date, and they had surgical, surgical um, thread in there that was like, he called it rope. And they, they left it in there, and his wound, he had had an operation, and the wound wouldn't close um, because all of this surgical thread kept coming out, and it was infected, so the wound wouldn't close, and it, was, it stayed that way for a year. So we brought him to America and had him checked out, and they said, it's not closing because it's, um, the wound wants to stay infected to, to, to get out all the infection. So they opened it up again, and they cleaned it out, and they didn't want to close it because um, they thought it would still uh, have pus and, and it would still purify. So they had what we call a, a butterfly, I think what they call a butterfly um, thing on it, a butterfly bandage on it. I'm looking at a physician. <laughs> and so um, what happened was that I had to change it every day. And once, the time when we were coming back from the hospital, and we were coming back, and Manindra, he talked about an investigative mind and report. He was reporting to me like I would report to Upandita. Every
every single little experience that he felt when he was going, when he was being cut, how it felt, how the mind states were, etc., etc., etc. Oh, everything was so detailed. And I thought, okay, okay, I, I will listen. He's listened to me plenty of times. So he's explaining in detail everything. And you know he's in this place of, you know, just, he just is understanding their experience of what's happening. So the other thing about Manindra is he loves to shop. Boy, I would hate to take him to Minneapolis because we would never see him again. <laughs> he loves to shop. So um, I used to take him to the drugstore, you know, this one particular drugstore called Long's. And uh, I, would, I would really have to be careful in taking him there that I had a lot of time because he'd like to look at everything. He would shop for things for other people because he's so generous, you know. And he would, he would take his dana and he would spend it to give people that needed things in India. So we used to go to this drugstore called Long's. On the way home from the hospital, the seat of the car was down and he was resting. And, um, and it, of course, his belly was, you know, um, still with that bandage and pretty fresh out of the operating room. And so we stopped there and I was going to get his antibiotics and um, more bandages for him so I could change the bandage. And so I thought, I'm pretty safe. Once I get to Long's, I would just say, I'll be right back. So got there, and uh, I, we stopped, and I said, Muniji, I'm going to be gone for a little while. I'll be right back, and I'm going to get your bandages. And he's laying there, and he says, where are we? <laughs> and I said, we're at Bong's. <laughs> and he's from his laying down position. He got up with his cotton all and he said, shopping? <laughs> he was just so raring. <laughs> so raring to go. <laughs> so, <laughs> I didn't let him come in with me. <laughs> but uh, if, you know, we... We learn to live on, in, on both these levels of life simultaneously. <laughs> so we learn to live in a, in a selfless, empty understanding of life. And we also learn to live in a life of interconnectedness, of having, because of this interconnectedness, having great, great respect for the laws of cause and effect and having great, great sensitivity to harmony in our lives. We learn to live in the world more wisely and more skillfully when we understand deeply what selflessness or emptiness of self really means. It's a very difficult transition, as you are all experiencing. Um, it's a lifelong process. It's not something that happens overnight. There might be one deep experience that really kind of gets you over the edge, gets you across those lines. But as we go towards that, it's a bit-by-bit -bit experience, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, dissolving, 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 dissolving. We see it in our experience. Along the way, it's very difficult Along the way, you know, Steve and I just wish that we had a magic wand that we could just say, 
okay, no more suffering. <laughs> but that doesn't happen. You know, very few people go through it that way. It's, it is possible, but very few people go through it that way. There's a story about this called the butterfly, and it sort of exemplifies um, how it's difficult to go through this. And it's like this. A compassionate person seeing a butterfly struggling to free itself from its cocoon and wanting to help very gently loosened the filaments to form an opening. The butterfly was freed, emerged from the cocoon, and fluttered about, but could not fly. What the compassionate person did not know was that only through the birth struggle can the wings grow strong enough for flight. Its shortened life was spent on the ground. It never knew freedom, never really lived. And so, as our teachers have seen us struggling to get out of the cocoon, and we in turn see you through that struggle, you know, there's no magic wand. There's, we can't come in and say, there, we're, we're opening that cocoon, come on out. You know, we have to watch you lift your wings and free yourself. We can only tell you, go left a little bit, <laughs> go right a little bit, you know, don't do so much right now. <laughs> go have a cup of tea, relax. <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> Try a little harder, there's a thin spot over there. You know, that's about all we can say to you. And through that, you know, somehow you get free. Mostly, we just say, be mindful. And when you're mindful, you see the way for yourself. You don't have to say anything at all. So it's a very difficult transition out of our cocoons. And then out of one cocoon, you know, we reach a level of peace, a happiness, some level of freedom from greed, hatred, and aversion. And there are other levels. And every level, every cocoon that we break free from, there's more and more freedom, more and more happiness, more and more peace. It's really a lifetime process, but we have to start somewhere. And the only place to start, the only place we end, is in the present moment. It's as simple as that. I think I said in one of the um, talks, that when the Dalai Lama was asked, uh, have you seen any progress in your practice? The Dalai Lama said, well, not from a year ago, maybe not from five years ago, but I can see over 10 years' time. So it really is a lifetime process. If we're expecting something in the next sitting, or in the next day, or in the next, uh, in, in this retreat, then we're in for trouble because those expectations are a wall before the truth to have expectations. It's a do-it-yourself job. Nobody else can do it for you. So as we realize this truth, as we come, become more aligned to how things really are, we're not, we see that we're not really trying to get rid of a self. That's not it at all. We're not getting rid of anything. We're just realizing that there was never one to begin with. As we see all these processes in life, there's just these five processes. 
and we become more and more connected to life as it truly is. We become part of that beautiful, big and strong tapestry of life that really gives us the strength to go on. So I'd like to end by beautiful um, bit of wisdom from the writer Rilke, German writer. He says, I live my life in growing orbits, which move out over the things of the world. Perhaps I can never achieve the last, but that will be my attempt. I am circling around the ancient tower, and I have been circling for a thousand years, and I still don't know if I'm a falcon or a storm or a great song. This is the interconnectedness of life. So let's close our eyes for a few moments.